But we're, uh, we're going to be continuing the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 8, and that's where we're going to be. We've been studying the book of Acts together as a church, and so if you're new and you're joining us, that's okay. You'll be able to pick, up, pick right up. Um, if, you're, if you've been just totally checked out on Acts, that's okay. You can pick right up where we're at today. And I want to start by telling you about this phenomenon. I, I, I think psychologists might call it something else, but I, I call it a phenomenon. Uh, it's, it's something called, that's referred to as the illusion of explanatory depth. Now, you don't let the big words throw you off, okay? It's, there's something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And I'm going to read the description uh, from an uh, article or from an academic paper. It says, humans fail to understand the world around them and also fail to recognize this lack of understanding. Humans fail to understand the world around them and also fail to recognize this lack of understanding. The illusion of explanatory depth exemplifies these failures. People believe they understand the world more deeply than they actually do and only realize that this belief is an illusion when they attempt to explain elements of the world. Okay, that's pretty heady because it actually came from this academic paper. What, he, what he's saying is, uh, what the, the author is saying is that people actually think they understand things better than they really do. And we speak really confidently about all sorts of things that we have like a three-inch knowledge about. Right, so people are, and this is this is true. I, I think podcasts might be the case in point for this whole thing, right? Because people, you can have an hour and a half long podcast about something you know very very little about, and uh, actually listen to a podcast a lot recently, and they, they actually claim that's what they hang their hat on is we don't know what we're talking about, and so they just kind of rest in that, which is refreshing, and it's a popular podcast because they recognize that they aren't living under this illusion of explanatory depth. And if you have kids, uh, once, if you have kids, then, then you, you've been exposed by this a little bit, right? So, or if you've been around your friend's kids, like it's, children will ask you questions like, hey, wh why do you get sunburned? And you're like, well, because of the sun, you know, it burned, it would just, it will, and then all of a sudden, you just saw it happen. You kind of just get, you wander out into this quicksand of thought, and, and then you're out there, and you're like, well, why does the sun burn you? You know, and it's like, well, the rays, in the rays are getting to your skin. It's, it's heat. Well, you know, and all of a sudden you're just totally just flat on your face and your kid's like, so I don't need to wear sunscreen, you know? And, and like, or why, why, are, why are donuts, why, are, why is eating too many donuts bad for you? You know? And it's like, in the near term, it feels great. Now, long term or even midterm, like you can, if I give my daughter a donut, it's just like, start your clock. She's going to, however many donuts she eats, that's how many tears she's going to cry. Like, it just happens, you know, so it's going to come out. But why are donuts bad? Well, it's sugar, the sugar, you know, actually, let me call Brian Cha-Cha. He's going to tell me something about my physio physiology and, the, you know, like, my insulin response and my body, you know, you know I, I don't know. I just, they're bad for you, okay? Just don't eat them. Don't eat so many. Or why do I need to go to bed? Well, sleep's important. Why is sleep? Well, kind of, that's when you... All of, a lot of my knowledge goes like right down to this certain depth and then it just stops. And that's true for you too. You live under this illusion as well, so it's not just me. Um, we start into an answer and realize that our knowledge about something just really barely breaks the surface. I tell you that because I was recently on the phone with a pastor friend of mine. He's a guy who's just an amazingly gifted pastor. And um, it's like what he was made for is to shepherd people. And uh, I had a phone call scheduled with him, but I was late to my phone. And I, I mean like 45 minutes late. Like I, 
sent him a message, hey, I'm running late, 15 minutes after I was supposed to call him, and then, you know, I was stuck on another phone call, I couldn't get off that phone call, so uh, 45 minutes later, I'm like, hey, man, I'm so sorry that I'm so late in calling you. And I immediately just had to bring up this situation where I was, I was actually had a meeting with this guy. I, he's, uh, he's a pastor from South Africa. I was in South Africa. I was, I was there for an assessment conference for pastors. Um, and I was supposed to meet him early one morning. He was going to take me, he was going to give up his day and take me on this cool safari thing. And uh, jet lag just caught up to me so hard. And I, I woke up. Uh, to my hotel phone ringing, and he's like, bro, are you, are you alive? Like, what happened? Did some, you know, did you overdose or something? Like, what happened in there? And, um, and, uh, but I immediately brought that up when I was late calling him for this phone call. And uh, he had forgotten about it. We laughed about it because, like, it, I did kind of like a shame laugh, you know, like, oh, yeah, it was funny. That's behind us, right? Um, but then he asked this question, and it stuck with me. Like, it was a question that just was, like, kind of piercing to me. It was meant as sort of just an offhanded, no, you know, nothing to it. But um, he said, you do know that's how grace works, right? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course I know how grace works. I'm a pastor. Literally, like, this is my job to tell people about grace. Of course I know how grace works, uh, except that it seems like I'm constantly being, needing to be reminded of how grace works. I am constantly needing to be reminded of how grace really works. I think I, get, I settle for um, an illusion of explanatory depth when it comes to grace, and I just let it sit there, and I forget how it really works. And that's revealed to me. It's revealed to me um, in moments that I would not like for it to be revealed, right? It's never comfortable when you reveal that you've forgotten how grace works. It's revealed to me whenever I fail to behave the way that I know I ought to behave, right? And it's revealed to me because in those moments, I don't relish in grace. I actually just conceal my failures, right? Because the last thing that I want to do is tell individuals or even a group full of people that, hey, I just really let it rip with this lady on the phone who works for the Fort Worth Municipal Court. I just totally laid into this woman for her incompetence and the incompetence of this entire judicial system of Fort Worth Municipal Court and their failure to send me letters when they're supposed to and their attacks on my credibility. Don't want to tell anybody that. I just want to hide that because I forget how grace works. Don't want to tell anybody that. Man, anger uh, manifests in my life because I'm trying to guard and protect my reputation or my credibility, you know? Don't want to tell anybody about it. I, my my uh, uh, need to be reminded about how grace really works is shows up whenever I fail. And then it also uh, shows up and is revealed whenever I am successful. Both sides. You can see it on both sides. I'm successful and I feel good about myself because I did good. That's why I'm confident in this interaction I have with somebody. That's even why I am gracious towards another person who's wronged me. It's not because God loves me, but because I wasn't the one who did wrong. You know what I mean? Maybe it's just me, but I bet 
that you sometimes operate inside of a space that could be this illusion of explanatory depth when it comes to grace and God's grace toward you. And uh, that's good news for us that we need to be reminded of how grace really works because at least half of the New Testament, literally the books of the New Testament, at least half of them begin and end with grace. And that's at least half of them because half of them were written by someone named Saul or Paul. He goes by both names for the record. So he introduced himself in letters by Paul, um, but he's referred to historically so often as Saul. He never actually just like makes a full name change, but uh, he goes by both, and he is responsible for writing what has been like 13 or 14 of the letters of the New Testament are written by this guy, and literally all of them. Go back and look. Just if you're, if you're like bored or you need something to do or even during this message you tune out, just start looking at all the letters that Paul wrote. And at the front and the back end, the first sentences and the last sentences will be grace to you, grace be with you. It might include other things like mercy or peace, but it always has grace. All of them. A hundred percent of those letters written by him start and end with grace. It's the bookends of his communication. It's the bookends of these uh, letters that, that God has written into his canon, his word for us. And why do you think he's just so obsessed with grace? Because uh, that, that's true. If there's a human that knows how grace works, it seems to be that Paul knows how grace works. If there's a human being that knows how grace works, it's Paul. And he's obsessed with it. I think the reason why is because he understands it and it changed his life. It changed his life. It gave him freedom from his past. It gave him confidence for his future. And it gave him uh, this purpose in the present. Everything about his life, his past and his future and his present was radically changed because of grace. And so now every time he's talking to somebody, he's going to start with grace and he's going to end with grace. And so let's look at this together, and we're looking at his story. That's why we're leaning into Acts, Acts chapter, end of chapter, chapter 7, into chapter 8 and 9, really just engages with this person and starts to cover, uh, Luke brings in the character of Saul. He enters into the story at the end of Acts chapter 7. And so let's see how uh, grace gives Paul freedom from his past. So in the end of Acts chapter 7, there's this horrible, tragic thing that happens. Stephen, a newly appointed deacon in the early church in Jerusalem, gets stoned to death outside of the city. So it's not looking, it's not great. And it would be a terribly tragic thing. And it is a terribly tragic thing, but there, it's, it's precisely here that, it, just for the record, I think Stephen's life actually testified something to Saul that ended up changing much of the world. So his death was not in vain, not even close. But let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 58. He says, Then they cast him out of the city as Stephen and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is where he enters into the equation. And it's a weird saying, like a weird phrase, but they lay down their garments. It's like he's like, hey, I'll look out for your stuff while you go kill this guy. I'll make sure nobody steals your bags while you go kill this guy. And it keeps going in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now there's like a hundred sermons that could be preached from these texts, and so I'm going to resist that temptation. I'm specifically wanting to see what, Paul, what Paul's past was like. When he, in this conversion, this, his story, so this is the beginning of his story. He entered, Luke enters, brings him into the storyline of the church here. But it's recorded three different times in the book of Acts. Three different times Paul's uh, conversion story is recorded in the book of Acts. And so um, Charles Spurgeon says, anytime something's written down three times like that, you should pay, you should pay close attention to that, okay? So let's not miss it. And, I, and I'm going to pull from Acts chapter 26, which is another place in which Paul is giving his testimony. He's articulating his testimony just to help you see exactly what he was, where he was at as a person, his past. What did his past really look like? In Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, I think I'm going to have this on the screen. And for the record, there's just a ton of uh, extended verses today. And um, that's because we're just letting Paul speak for himself on a lot of this stuff, okay? And so Acts chapter 26, he says this, uh, verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced, I'm telling you that, hopping back and forth between all the places I'm going to go is going to be pretty tough. You can do it, uh, if you, maybe if you have tabs, or you can just look at the screen. Your, your call. Acts chapter 26, 9 to 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is aggressive. And this is Paul. He's just telling you, this is where I was at. This is where I was at. I was doing everything I could to oppose the name of Jesus. And he adds to what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 7 there, because he didn't just get them in prison, right? When they got in prison, what he did was cast his vote to have them executed. And what is crazy to me about this account in 26, the, the account in 22, and the account in chapter 7 of Acts, you know what's crazy about this? So Luke was the author. Luke was writing. And what blows my mind about this is that Luke was getting a lot of his material from Paul. Later on in the book of Acts, he starts, Luke starts writing with a we. Hey, we were doing this, we went there, we went there. Because he was with him. He was with him. The account in Acts chapter 7, the speech from Stephen is so long in detail. Why? Luke had a first-hand source sitting next to him, and then he said this, and then he said this, and then he said this. And this is what blows my mind. You, you, you might have seen it in, Acts, in verse 1 of, of chapter 8. He approved of his execution. That's like a heart-level insight into what's going on with this person named Saul standing there. Can you imagine? 
he saw this horrific thing playing out in front of him. Stephen, who, by all accounts, his face looked like an angel. He was incredibly peaceful. He was not trying to disrupt or do anything harmful to anybody. Got dragged out of a city and killed. And in Saul's heart, he looked at that moment, looked at this horrific thing happening, and the text tells us that his heart said, yes, yes, do that. Yes, kill him. And, and the reason why this is crazy to me is because Paul told Luke this. I have no doubt about this, that Paul was sitting next to Luke. Paul talked to Luke and said, yeah, my heart said yes to that. I approved of it. I wanted that to happen. Because that's what he said to King Agrippa. In Acts chapter 26, he was saying, hey, not only did I want people to get in prison, I wanted them dead. I hated Christians because I hated this name of Jesus. And this is, this is, not, and this is so crazy to me. This is how you know that grace changed Paul's life. It set him free from his past. Nobody, nobody apart from grace lives a life that's so transparent and unconcealed as this. He doesn't conceal what would naturally be concealed. I, um, you may not know this, but I cut my hair pretty short, okay? So you can tell it's short. And I actually, it's an awkward thing because you have to cut it regularly to keep it from getting into an strange, like, in-between space. So if you ever buzz your head, just commit, okay? Or commit to, like, being hidden for a period of time because you're going to have to, like, ride out this awkward middle, you know, middle time. Um, but there's a good chance, because I do it early in the morning and I do it by myself, uh, that there's a strip of hair just that I totally miss on the back of my head. Um, and if that was the case, I would do, I would naturally just not be letting, I, w- I mean, there's no good reason. You can look, I guess, if you want to and see if there's anything missing. I missed any spots. But we don't, we don't naturally try to reveal where we have missed and where we have failed and where we were clearly in the wrong. But Paul does. He says, no, I want you to know this. What I want you to know about this execution of Stephen was that in my heart I said yes to that. I want you to know it. Why? Why does Paul want you to see all of his worst? Why does he stand in front of you and unlike so many of us, say, no, no, look, this was an area that I really blew it. No, no, look, this was an area that I was totally wrong. We don't do that. We don't. But it's because we have an illusion about how well we understand grace. Because Paul did. And the reason why he does, you can see in 1 Timothy Okay, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, and this is, again, a long quote, but just stick with me. So he says this to Timothy, and why he can, helps us understand how he's free from his past. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though, I was former, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You want to know what you can hang your hat on? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Why? Why? Verse 16, 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why does Paul make sure that you can see all of the ugly things in his heart? Why? So that you know there's room at the table of grace for you. He's free from his past. He's not defined by it. And he doesn't want you to be defined by yours. He wants you to know that there's room at the table for everybody who would come into a church in deep in your heart, maybe not even that deep, there's some part of you that you really know you don't want anybody else to see. There's something you did. There's something you said. There's something you thought that you don't want anybody else to know about. Because if, if they did, if they did, then you wouldn't be accepted anymore. Paul's saying, that's not true. I'm writing the Bible, and I was the guy who was approving of the executions. So here's the deal. You have freedom from your past because of grace. When you understand the, what grace really is, you have freedom from your past. And that's freedom from all the shameful or despairing things in your past. But it's also freedom from pride about your past, a false pride. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if you think you're a good person, if you think that you're morally capable of earning God's approval and standing before him as somebody who's done enough good to outweigh the bad, as if that's even a thing, Paul's saying, my resume is better than yours. Here's what he says. I have more. I have more reason for confidence. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see what he just did? He said, nothing in the past will define me. Not anything that is ugly or broken, and not anything that the world would applaud or cheer. Nothing defines me from my past. He's speaking to your heart on this. Nothing from your past, because of grace in Jesus, defines who you are today. You're free. You're free from trying to keep up some, uh, some kind of a display of how good you are, how much you have it together, and how great you are as a person. You're free. None of your good acts and good choices and right living could have gotten you into the place where you are before God today. And nothing from your past. Now, now, like maybe somebody in here has, maybe some of you were overseeing some execution of, executions of Christians in here. Anybody? No? Here's what's crazy. Even if you said yes, I would say, well, you're in pretty good company. Not even that. So you're free from your shame and you're free from your pride. 
Martin Luther said this. It's on the, it's on the screen. Martin Luther, pretty uh, aggressive communicator. He said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. He says, you know what? You know what's really messed up? That you, that you could think that you could earn your way into God's presence. It's crazy. It's, it's damnable and pernicious. It's a heresy. So the common denominator of both those things, your shame and your pride, is that you were at the center of them. That's the common denominator of those things. Grace, what grace does is puts Jesus at the center of your existence. It's not natural. It's, an, it's a supernatural thing to do. But it puts Jesus at the center of your existence, your story, who you are. Jesus is at the center of that. Now, this is... Again, I'm going to show you what Paul, like his, he doesn't have a problem with explanatory depth when it comes to grace. He reveals that in Romans 5. What he wants to tell you about and help you understand is the dynamics of grace, how it really works. He says this, um, this is why Jesus is at the center of who you are. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sin is different than grace. Trespass is different than grace. The free gift, continuing in verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, because of what Adam did wrong, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. See, what Paul's trying to help you get is what is really at work here with grace. The problem for your life is that you didn't start at neutral, which is why you don't need a second chance. The gospel is not a second chance. If everybody ever tells you the gospel is a second chance, they don't understand grace. That's not what grace is. Grace is not another shot for me to get it right. What Paul is saying is that Jesus got it right for you. You would not, on your own, get it right. Now, this is horribly offensive because you guys look like great people. You really do. You seem really nice. I know a lot of you, and I really like you. I'd like to hang out with you. I'd trust you with my children. You're really nice people. But left to your own devices, apart from Jesus Christ, you would not get it right with all the chances in eternity. You don't need a second chance. That's what Romans 5 says. It, grace is different from sin because sin entered the world, and it corrupted everything. Grace enters in, and it starts redeeming everything. Jesus is at the center, not you. Do you see that? That's what grace is. It sets you free from you. And when it sets you free from the past that you have, it also gives you confidence about the future. Okay? The thing that I kept coming back to with Paul this week was like, why was he so angry? You know, a lot of people opposed Christianity, like right when it was getting started. A lot of people opposed the way, which is what it was called, the way of Jesus. A lot of people opposed that but not like Paul. Paul was the chief persecutor. He was the most angry person that there was about Christianity. He hated it. He wasn't neutral about it. 
He hated it. Do you see how angry he was? It talks about him breathing out murderous threats. When's the last time you were mumbling under your breath about something? And don't pretend like never. Like, just be honest with yourself, at least. When's the last time you were just under your breath? I mean, I can't believe that. Got angry about something. Paul lived in that place. When people started talking about Jesus, he said, no, man, not on my watch. We're going to shut this thing down. He made it his personal mission to shut down the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting. So when, when, when Paul records his story in Acts chapter 26, he has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's very famous. It's a very famous passage. You read Acts chapter 9, you'll see the whole thing unfold. Damascus Road, he's on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians so that he can drag them off and hopefully get them killed too because he's just going to shut this thing down. And he, he, he around noontime on, on that trip to Damascus, gets knocked off of his horse by a very bright light. And depending on which story he's telling you, you know, different parts of it, Sometimes the people can hear the voice, but they don't understand it. Sometimes they, they see the light, but they can't see what Paul sees. But he, ma- he makes a point to prove that it's not a hallucination through the course of these three testimonies, which would be a really good question. Is like, is Paul, did he just eat some kind of weird first century mushrooms, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, dude, it's really bright. That's got to be Jesus. Let me change all my course of my life. You know, that's not what happened. He had this experience where he was physically knocked off a horse, physically blind, but saw Jesus, encountered him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which isn't like a Saul, Saul. In the Hebrew, that was the way of saying, speaking with a sincerity and a affection, Saul, Saul, why are you doing And in Acts chapter 26, he records one more thing that Jesus says to him. He doesn't say it the other two times, but one more thing that Jesus says. If you've ever heard the word goads, I'm sure that it's in this coming from this place. I don't have never heard the word goad otherwise used except for in this context. Acts 26 verse 14. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. When we had fallen to the ground, so everybody around him, you know, everybody's on the ground. uh, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And you read it, and you probably are just like, I'm sure goads make sense in that sentence. I don't know what they are, but we're going to move forward from here, right? <laughs> um, goads are the like first century version of a cattle prod. So if you, know, if you don't know what a cattle prod is, you should go to like Tractor Supply, pick one up, and see what happens, okay? Because it's pretty exciting. Um, but uh, it's, uh, there were these sharp sticks that, they, that shepherds or um, that like uh, cattle herdsmen would use to, to direct animals. And so they would just poke the animal because it's like, hey, you're going left, you should go right, you know? And it would be like, ouch, that hurts, I'm going to turn right instead of going left, like pretty basic, okay? Same thing with the cattle prod, actually, just using electricity, which is exciting, especially if you have brothers and sisters who have a hold of one and you don't. It's very scary. Um, But Jesus was goading Paul to the truth. So it's happening. He says, says, Paul says, it's hurting you, man. You're kicking, kicking against this thing that's trying to get you towards life, Paul. And um, 
that is this weird thing where like, G, uh, Paul's uh, conversion is actually a process. It's not instantaneous. Something was going on with his heart in these days that he was persecuting Christians. Something was unsettled. Something was after him. Something was messing with him. Something was goading him. And what he found out was that something was someone who was named Jesus was goading him towards the truth that grace alone would save you, Paul. You're not enough. And I think Paul knew it. If any of you have set up in your own minds or hearts this sort of religious system that maybe you say you believe in Jesus, but at the end of the day you're just kind of trying to keep the checks and balances and keep the scorecard right so that you can know for sure that God loves you. You know, if anybody of you set, set that up in your own heart, then you know when you look in the mirror at the end of the day that even though you've been winning maybe for the last few days, you know at the end of it that you're still not right. You're still not enough. That you can't keep your own standards. And Paul knew it. You can read Romans 7. You can see how Paul knew that he wasn't doing enough. Jesus said, stop kicking against the goads, Paul. Grace is going to save you. And it took Paul, it's made Paul leave behind everything he knew. But when grace got a hold of him, he was free from his past and trying to prove his righteousness, and he was sure about the future. That's what is very clear about Paul. It's frustrating clear to everybody who's around him that he is very sure about what his destiny is going to be. He stands on trial, and he says, now I stand, in Acts chapter 26, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Why is he on trial? Because he's hopeful about the future. He's hopeful about the future. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. What he's preaching about in this moment is the resurrection. Do you see that? He says, I delivered it to you as of first importance. Jesus died, and then he came back from the dead. And all of these letters, I, it, would, it would take us the rest of this day and week to go through all of the letters and show you constantly, Paul is trying to get your attention to say, the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of your resurrection. The rest of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians is him saying, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the point. You're going to be raised from the dead. He has this unrelenting confidence about his future. He is free from his past. He is totally settled in his heart that his future destiny is a resurrection with Jesus. He can't see it, but he knows it. That's what grace does to you. Unmerited favor, the gift of God says you're free from everything back there, and so you can be hopeful about everything up here. Charles Spurgeon says this, the great fact of the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of the temple of truth, the keystone of the arch of the gospel. The apostles made this truth very prominent in their preaching, and here Paul begins his address with it. It was the great difficulty of the Christian religion at that period, so Paul went straight to it at once. He's like, I want you to know that there's a resurrection. 
if I want you to know anything, is that Jesus died and he came back from the dead because you need to know that your future is secure. Not just free from the past, but secure in the future. And so, is there something in you that you're angry, you're breathing out murderous threats about, you know? Maybe not. Maybe you're just indifferent to Jesus. You're indifferent to the gospel because your confidence is in something that's altogether irrelevant to Jesus. You're not even looking for a future hope. You're just looking for a hope next month. Hope at the next meal. Hope at the next drink. Hope at the next Netflix session. Paul says you got a hope out there that can't be touched because of the resurrection of Jesus. Grace has secured your place in that. So the last thing that grace gives you is a peace and purpose for the present. Peace and purpose in the present. I don't know if any of you are looking for peace or purpose right now. It might be like not high in your priority list, but I would bet that it's somewhere near the top. I bet you're looking for some peace and purpose somewhere, and Paul is going to say that he's got it in ways that you only wish you could, <laughs> but he would love to give it to you. Second Corinthians, he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day in the midst of all the hardship of his life. He didn't have an easy life. He actually had a really crazy life, but he somehow found peace in the midst of all of that. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. <clears throat> Paul says, I've got something that you can't touch. <clears throat> In Philippians, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've, I cannot be touched. Other places, he says, if I stay here, that's more fruitfulness for the gospel. If I die, I get to live with Jesus. So you tell me, which one do you prefer? Because I'd rather live with Jesus, but I'll stay here if you want. That's what made him so frustrating to people who would arrest him. Grace got into this man's life, defined it, and now he can't help but have hope in the future, freedom from the past, purpose in the present. He just, he just can't help it. And that purpose, just, just so you know, I think some of you, maybe the freedom from the past that you're looking for um, might not be as distant as you'd like it to be. I think this might be the case that some of you have some things in your past that are a little bit too recent. Because that's, that's how we operate as human beings. Like, we'll say, hey, well, I'm just going to cover this up for a period of time, and then I can kind of dig it up because it's got, it's got maybe like statute of limitations on this has passed, and so it's cool now, you know, or I can talk about this issue I had back then, but maybe you had an issue last week. Maybe you had an issue this morning. Maybe your issue, your past that you want to be free from is just not so distant. Grace doesn't need time to mature to be real to you. Now, you might need time to mature in your understanding and your depth of that understanding, but it doesn't need time to mature in you to take effect and to be real. And here's how we know this. Acts chapter 9, you know, and, and we're going to end after this. Um, Acts chapter 9 says this about Paul. I don't know if it's up there. Yeah, it is. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately. So Paul, he gets knocked off his horse. Jesus says, hey, it's me you're persecuting. He's like, oh, wow, everything's different. But Jesus says, hey, I'm going to have somebody lead you into town, and you're going to talk to a guy named Ananias, He's going to explain your mission, okay? And so he goes in, Ananias meets with him. If you read it, it's actually awesome to see Ananias 
engage with the God on this? Like, he's like, we sure that um, you got it all worked out in him? Because he's been trying to kill people. And God's like, I know. Just go talk to him, Ananias. You know, I've got a plan for him. And um, gets in there, and Ananias says, Brother Paul, immediately he's his brother, first of all, um, and scales, these things, it says things like scales fall off his eyes, and he can see again. And, uh, and then this is what crazy, this is what crazy me. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? What happened on this road to Damascus? What happened on this road trip that Paul had? Immediately, Paul went to the work of proclaiming the gospel of grace that he had received. He didn't wait. And you don't have to either. You don't need more time. You don't need more maturity. You don't need more. You, you might need to understand grace a little bit better. You might need to understand that it's an unmerited gift that God gave to you, that Jesus took your place once and for all. You might need to understand that more, but you don't need more time to become someone great so that you can proclaim the good news of Jesus. Paul didn't. He said, oh, oh let me tell you about what changed my life. Not once he paid back God back for all the things he'd done wrong. He knew that he couldn't, and neither can you. You will never pay God back for the ways that you have rebelled and rejected him. You'll never do it, not ever. Not even a little bit. But you don't have to. That's what grace is. You know that's how grace works, right? If you've been living under the illusion of explanatory depth when it comes to grace, here's what's interesting about what I learned about that illusion. Um, one way that people can actually realize that they're living under the illusion of explanatory depth in their life is specifically linked to their attempt to explain the thing. So literally, you want to know that you don't understand thermodynamics? Start explaining it and you'll pretty much run off the cliff of understanding, and you'll be like, oh, I guess that's where my understanding ends. You want to know that you don't really understand all the issues that are coming up in these political races, which everybody's experts on, for sure, uh, except down to a depth of like three inches, you know, and it's like, oh, that hit the bedrock of my knowledge. I don't know why gentrification is bad. Which... Really, read an Economist article on that one. It's really interesting. I don't know why this is wrong. I don't know why this should be different. I don't know why. And I, I don't care about that stuff really as much with you. You do your homework on that and spend your time on that. I don't really care. I care about this one thing for you, that you would not live under the illusion of explanatory depth when it comes to grace. And so the activity, the thing for you to do to actually grow in this understanding of it is actually just to say it, to speak it, to say it out loud. And it's going to be uncomfortable because you're actually going to get to a point that you stop understanding how it works. You might get to a point where you're like, well, Jesus said something. Or Jesus died and I don't know what's next. 
you might actually run into those points, but that would be the win for you, is that you actually start to see what the bounds are, what the edges of your understanding of the gospel of grace really are, and then you start pushing them further. You start expanding them. And so here's what I want you to say out loud this week to yourself, to your roommate, to your friend on the phone who called you and needed somebody to ask him, hey, do you, do you know how grace works? To your kids, to your spouse, say it out loud this week, these two things. Jesus' death is my death and the payment for everything that separated me from God. I am free from trying to prove my goodness or disprove my brokenness. I'm free. Jesus' death is my death. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection and the proof positive of my eternal life. I am confident that nothing in life or death will separate me from his love in Jesus. So those two things, say it out loud. Take some moment in your life and start applying the gospel to it. Say it out loud. Well, the gospel says this into this moment. And if you can't figure it out, start asking somebody for some help. Why does the gospel apply to this? How does Jesus speak into this? Why is this true for me right now? And start pushing the bounds of your depth of your knowledge of grace. I'm going to close with this, uh, kind of a silly example, but it's what I got. Um, watching the Great British Breaking Show, which is a great use of my time, I can tell you. Um, except for this example came out of it. I heard something. At the end of this episode, it's a, it's a baking show, baking competition, so, you know, there you go. Um, they, ma- they somehow find a way to make it really interesting, shocking, you know. Um, and uh, I heard this person say something that I thought was amazing, uh, amazingly applicable to you. Uh, <laughs> She just lost. She got kicked off the show, so her bakes weren't as good as the other people's bakes. Okay, so, but she, so she lost. And you know, you're not the star baker. You're out of here. And um, what she said was that you know she enjoyed her time. She loved it so much. But they were all in quarantine during the filming of this show. Like they were all in this bubble, baking bubble. So like very carbohydrate-filled bubble, you know. And um, she only brought a few sets of clothes with her because she didn't expect to really be there that long. She, expect, she expected to get kicked off the show much earlier. And so she said, I've just been here wearing other people's clothes. And my ears just were like, what? That's us. If you were trying to pack enough for heaven in terms of the righteous robes that you need to carry and wear throughout eternity to be able to even live there, you could never pack enough. But we, we will live in that place in our forever home with Jesus because we're wearing somebody else's clothes. He's going to put on his righteous robes on us so what we wear before the Father It's not all the things you've done right, all the things you've done wrong, none of that. What you wear before God is just robes of Jesus' righteousness.
So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I um, just would ask if you would, by just in your kindness, do something supernatural today and um, uh, give us more depth. Take us to depth of understanding about the grace that we have in Jesus that are new today. Help us to not skate on the surface of some kind of superficial knowledge that won't really help us finish the race that we're on. Thank you for knocking Paul off of his horse and then putting your spirit in him so that he would write down all the truths of what you were telling him. Thank you for confirming that with every other author in the scriptures. Thank you for saying the same thing over and over and over again since the dawn of time, which is that you love us and that we could never do enough to get into your presence on our own, but you will do enough so that we can stay there forever. Thank you for saying these things and teaching us these things. And Would you teach our hearts that in new ways today? I ask for my friends that you would expand the depth of their knowledge of your grace towards them in Jesus today. In Jesus' name we pray.